Good morning. Stick out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 6. We come back this morning to our study of the gospel of Luke and we pick it up right where we left off last week, not just in terms of where we are verse-wise in the text, uh, but also thematically. Because you'll remember last week we talked about an incident that occurred on the Sabbath from the first five verses of chapter 6. And that's exactly where we find ourselves again today. The Sabbath, of course, was commanded by God to be a day of rest for the Israelites. Uh, From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And we saw last week that the actual law in the Old Testament with regards to the Sabbath is not very specific. Basically, it's just don't work and set the day aside as being holy to the Lord. Uh, Even in that agricultural society, in which they would have otherwise just naturally worked every day, God graciously tells them to take a day off, rest their bodies, refresh their spirits in worship to him. But the Jewish people didn't leave it at that, because for them that was too vague, that was too broad. And so they added rules, and they added rules, and they added rules, right? 24 chapters in the Mishnah, uh, 39 categories of work, right? All these stipulations about what uh, you could do and what you couldn't do on that day. And these man-made traditions and commandments were then elevated to be equal to, or perhaps even in subtle ways, greater than the law of God itself. And so the Sabbath, which was supposed to be a gracious day of rest from God, was turned into the most burdensome, spiritually exhausting day of the week, where you constantly had to worry about what you could and couldn't do. And for the Pharisees of Jesus' day, as the self-righteous legalists who thought that it was their strict observance of rules and regulations like these that would make them right with God, well, these Sabbath regulations became to them a major marker of one's faithfulness to God. And then they would press it upon everybody else as a means to be righteous. And they would boast in their own faithfulness to those rules. Are you keeping the Sabbath like we're telling you to keep the Sabbath? Are you right before God because of your Sabbath observance like we are? They completely misunderstood what it meant to be right with God, and their understanding of the Sabbath was a big contributor to that. And so it's on one such Sabbath that Jesus and his disciples are going through a grain field, And the disciples begin to pluck and eat some heads of grain. And immediately the the Pharisee alarms start going off, right? Unlawful, unlawful. You can't do that. That's reaping. That's threshing. That's winnowing. And that's preparing food. You're breaking the Sabbath. You're doing work. We talked about last week how that's just ridiculous. That's not what God meant when he said, you shall do no work. But rather than debate them on the definition of work, Jesus confronts them by making two broader points. First, he says, consider the story of David and the showbread. If David wasn't condemned when the ritual ceremonies of the law were set aside to show mercy to those who were in need, legitimate need, 
well, how are you Pharisees going to condemn my disciples for breaking one of your man-made rules for legitimate human needs? And the second, even larger and more important point, verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Which means not only that Jesus is the ultimate authority on what is and what is not permissible on the Sabbath. And so disciples, you're good. You can keep eating that grain because the Lord of the Sabbath permits it. But it also means that Jesus is God. Because who but God could be Lord over a divinely established institution like the Sabbath. Now if you've been paying attention to what we've been going through in the Gospel of Luke you may have noticed that this story is similar in a lot of ways to the healing of the paralytic that we saw back in chapter 5. Because in that story, Jesus makes the statement that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And here in chapter 6, he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so in chapter 5, he claims to have authority to forgive sins, an authority that only can belong to God. Chapter 6... He claims to have authority over the Sabbath. Again, an authority that can only belong to God since God is the one who established and ordained the Sabbath. In that story in chapter 5, you'll remember Jesus backs up his claim with a miracle by healing the paralytic, which brings us to our story for today because here Luke shows us how Jesus backs up the claim to be Lord of the Sabbath again through a miracle. This time, it's a healing performed on the Sabbath. And so look at how our story starts in verse 6, on another Sabbath. And so it's not the same day as the story from last week in verses 1 through 5, but you see how these two stories are clearly thematically linked. In the first story, Jesus declares that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, and in the second story, he's going to demonstrate that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So as always, let's start by reading the text. And you might be asking yourself, well, why uh, are we going to read the text if we're going to talk about it anyway? Well, first, I want you to see the text in your own Bibles. Uh, Second, I want you to see how what I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes talking about is actually coming from the text, right? I'm not just giving you my own personal opinions. I'm not just giving you my own personal thoughts. uh, But this is coming from God's Word. And third... Even if I were to preach like the worst sermon that you've ever heard in your life, which I hope is not the case, but suppose I do, you've at least heard God's word in this sermon. And God's word is always profitable. It's always edifying. So look along as I read Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. This is the word that God has for you this morning. On another Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. 
but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Father, we confess that our hearts can take something as wonderful as your word, the preaching of your word, for granted, where we just begin to think of it as something that we just do every Sunday morning, and therefore our minds and our hearts become disengaged. And so we ask that you would help us, that that would not be the case for any of us in this room this morning. We ask that you would grant to us soft and attentive hearts, that your word might work in us to conform us to the image of your Son. We particularly pray for those in this room who do not know you. We pray that today would indeed be the day in which you would grant them faith and repentance, that they might be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's think about this story that we just read in uh, three parts. We've got the hand, the healing, and the hatred. So you're never going to forget this story again, right? This is a story about a withered hand that Jesus heals, which leads to the Pharisees' hatred, the hand, the healing, and the hatred. Point number one is the hand. Look at verses six and seven. As we've seen, it was customary for first century Jews to gather on the Sabbath in the synagogue for worship services. And just like we saw in chapter four, right, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath, well, here he gets another invitation on this particular Sabbath day to teach the people. And it's there on that day that there's a man who's got an issue with his hand. Uh, Luke tells us that his hand was withered. That word withered literally means dry, and so uh, it's also used in Hebrews chapter 11 to describe the dry land that the Israelites crossed over when God parted the Red Sea. And so there's probably some kind of muscular disease going on here where his hand is paralyzed and, and it's atrophied to the point that it appears lifeless and dried up and shriveled. And Luke alone, uh, of the three gospel writers who include this account in their gospels, uh, it's also in Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke alone tells us that it was the man's right hand that was withered. You see, right hand, left hand, uh, those kinds of details matter. On my son's little league team, uh, one of our top pitchers, uh, literally before the, the week before the season begins, uh, his dad texts the other coaches and tells us that his son broke his wrist sliding headfirst in a school kickball game. Now, of course, we're not trying to sound uh, insensitive or uncompassionate, but all the coaches can't help but wonder, which wrist? Is it his pitching arm? Turns out it was his non-pitching wrist, and quicker recovery, he's going to be back on the mound soon. But right hand, left hand, right, those details matter. A man was there whose right hand was withered. Assuming that this man was right-handed, in a day in which most work was physical, most labor was manual, well, you can imagine how hard his life would have been having a completely non-functional dominant hand. Luke is describing for us a physical malady, but not just a physical malady. This is something that has much broader consequences for this man's life. And I'm not just talking about pitching in Little League, 
talking about his ability to work, his ability to provide for his family, his ability to be a productive member of society. And so Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. There's a man there who's got a severe problem, one that's affected his life very negatively, but they're not the only ones of note in the synagogue in that, that morning. Because look at verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees are there, and what are they doing? They're watching him. You'll remember where we are in the broader context of Luke, right? We are right at the end of five consecutive stories in which the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees has been rising. Uh, Five straight stories in which the Pharisees have been watching him with suspicion and with anger. You'll remember that began back in chapter 5, verse 17. Look at what it says there. Pharisees, teachers of the law, they were sitting there. They have come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Uh, They've come from near and far to watch him. And they're furious when he claims the authority to forgive sin. Then the next story, again, they're watching him. And this time they're watching him eat with tax collectors and sinners. And that makes them furious that Jesus is going to associate with those kinds of people. And then in the next story, they're watching him again, this time taking note of the fact that his disciples aren't fasting, and that too adds to the tension. And then in the next story, as we go into chapter 6 now, they're watching him again, this time in, of all places, a grain field. And at least in my imagination, I'm picturing them like secretly spying on him and tailing him like Sherlock Holmes, like ready to jump out the second that he does anything wrong. Well, here in our narrative, they're back at it again. This time they're in a synagogue. But just think about that. They're in a synagogue. Instead of focusing on God's word that's being taught in the synagogue, instead of having hearts full of worship on this Sabbath day, instead of seeking out the fellowship with the people of God who are gathered there, what are these guys doing What is their priority? They're watching Jesus. They're watching him closely to see if he would dare do something that is not allowed on the Sabbath. We talked last week at length about some of the ridiculous regulations that the Pharisees had added to the law of God with regards to the Sabbath, like all these rules about what you could and what you couldn't do. Here's one more. According to their custom, you are not allowed to heal people unless it was a life-threatening situation. Uh, You could stop something from getting worse. You could sustain life, but you weren't allowed to make anything better. You couldn't improve anybody's situation. Uh, Whether you were a doctor with a patient or a parent with a child, uh, it would have been considered work and thus a violation of the Sabbath to make anybody better. So for example, if you cut yourself you were allowed to stop the bleeding, but you weren't allowed to put ointment on it because ointment would heal and healing would be work. So band-aids, okay. Neosporin, don't go near it. Now thinking about that in the context of our story, well, this man, as dire as his condition is, his hand situation certainly is not life-threatening. And so this was the exact kind of situation that the Pharisees would say healing is not allowed on the Sabbath. But if you think about that, that's a little bit ridiculous. 
Jesus has been healing people left and right. And so he would have been allowed to heal this man on a Tuesday or on a Thursday or a Sunday. No problem. But just because it's Saturday, just because it's the Sabbath, he is not supposed to heal this man. A man who maybe not, is, not, is not dying, but he's clearly in need. I could miraculously heal you today. And well, no, I'm, you're just going to have to suffer for another day. Later on in the same gospel, there's a story of another person who would also fit into this exact category. There's a woman with a disabling spirit in Luke chapter 13. And I want you to see what the ruler of the synagogue says when Jesus heals her on the Sabbath. Because I think this kind of encapsulates the pharisaical mentality with regards uh, to all of this. Luke 13, 14, the ruler of the synagogue in because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Remember I said earlier that the Pharisees had elevated their man-made Sabbath regulations above God's law. I think this is a clear example of that. Because they've elevated, here's our rules about how you've got to keep the Sabbath above what Jesus would call the second greatest commandment in the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, just think about these guys. They don't care at all about this man with the withered hand, this poor guy. Like, as far as they're concerned, he is just a sacrificial pawn in their game. Like, he is just the bait that they're hoping the fish will take. They don't want him to be healed because they cared about him. They don't want him to be healed because he should have a normal life. They wanted him to be healed so that they could trap Jesus in violating this exalted rule. And so don't you dare do what we consider to be work from their rule book, potential violations of that tradition. Well, those are clearly being elevated above the mercy and the love that God commands in his law. And so the Pharisees here are like, They're like hungry lions, right? They're they're ready to pounce on their prey. They know exactly what's coming when this man with the withered hand walks in to the synagogue. They know exactly what Jesus is going to do. So they're ready. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Point number one, the hand. Which brings us to point number two the healing. Jesus knows exactly what the Pharisees are up to. Look at verse 8. He knew their thoughts. He knows exactly how they're gearing up to accuse him if he tries to heal this man. And so Jesus knows there's this potential confrontation here. But you'll notice that he doesn't take the easy way out. What would have been the easy way out? Well, he could have just said to the man, hey, listen, come back tomorrow. Come back any other day of the week, for that matter. I can heal you then. If he did that, the Pharisees would have absolutely nothing to accuse him with. Or, if he didn't want to make the guy wait a whole day, he could have just pulled him aside and said, Hey, listen, these Pharisees, they've got these ridiculous rules. I'm not going to make you wait a whole day. Why don't you just come find me later when they're gone, and I'd be happy to heal you. But of course, that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he's going to make it a point to heal the man on the spot, in public, right before the Pharisees' eyes, knowing full well the consternation that's about to come. He's not going to dodge this. 
He's going to address this head on because he wants to confront the Pharisees and their system of self-righteousness. And so Jesus calls the man, presumably to the front, where he is, where everybody could see. And then he asks a question to the Pharisees. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? I want you to consider that Jesus does not ask the question that we're kind of expecting him to ask here. We're expecting him to ask, is it lawful or not to heal this man on the Sabbath? But Jesus doesn't ask that question. Because just like we saw last week, he's not trying to get into the technicalities of how the Pharisees defined work. And then how a miraculous healing would fit into that system. He's not interested in doing that. No, Jesus, just like last week, addresses the bigger picture. And he does so here by asking two questions that really need no answers because the answers are so obvious. Look at the text, first question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Well, no Pharisee, given those two choices, is going to say to do harm. Whether it's the Sabbath or it's not the Sabbath, it's always lawful to do good, not harm. So every scribe and Pharisee in the room would agree, right? If they're forced to answer the question, they would say to do good. Question number two, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or destroy it? Again, no Pharisee, given those two choices, is going to say to destroy life. Whether it's the Sabbath or it's not the Sabbath, it's lawful to save life, not destroy life. And so every scribe and Pharisee in the room, if forced to answer that question, would say, to save life. So the answers are so obvious, but the Pharisees can't answer. Because if they say, yes, it's lawful to do good and to save, you see, they've just given Jesus permission to heal that man. But there's another reason why the Pharisees have to remain quiet. And it has to do with the way in which Jesus asks these questions. Because notice in these questions, notice that in each question, Jesus gives two and only two choices. It's either you're doing good or you're doing harm. It's either you're saving life or destroying it. Like in both questions, there is no third category. There is no neutral option. Well, let's think about that. Obviously, Jesus is saying that what he's about to do in healing this man is good and is saving life. But if there's only two options, if there is no third option, that means that for Jesus to not heal this man would be evil. It would be destroying life. Why? Well, it would be evil for Jesus to not heal this man simply because of these Sabbath rules because that would be elevating those man-made rules over the clear commands in God's word to love your neighbor. And it would be destroying life for Jesus to not heal this man because that would be prioritizing pharisaical traditions 
over this poor man's well-being. And so by limiting the options to two and only two, Jesus is saying that he can't not heal this man. And he's also implying that while he's doing good and while he's saving life, the Pharisees, on the other hand, by trying to stand in Jesus' way, they are doing harm. They are destroying life. And the Pharisees have no rebuttal. They have no response because this logic is airtight. And so you can picture, just in your mind's eye, a deafening silence falls on the room as Jesus asks these questions. Mark adds that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And Jesus breaks that silence by saying to the man, stretch out your hand. And just like that, verse 10, he did so. Kind of an understatement there, but he stretches out his hand. His hands are stored. Again, remember the massive implications of his ailment that we talked about earlier. And so this is more than just a restoration of his physical hand. This is a restoration of this man's life. Point number two, the healing. Before we move on, though, did you catch that odd command that Jesus gives to this man? Because he tells the man, stretch out your hand. I mean, this guy's hand is paralyzed. Right? It's atrophied. It's withered. This is not like his earlier command, come and stand here. The man could do that just fine. His legs work just fine. But stretch out your hand. Well, that's why he needs to be healed in the first place. Because he can't do that. But that's exactly what Jesus commands him to do. And so part of the healing is Jesus giving the man the ability to do what he previously could not so that he could obey Jesus' command. And friends, that serves us as a wonderful picture of salvation. Stretch out your hand. That's the one thing that a man with a withered hand cannot do. And yet that's exactly what Jesus commands him to do. Well, in the same way, in the gospel, we are commanded to repent and believe. But here's the thing. In and of ourselves, we can't do that because we're spiritually dead. Like if there's one thing that spiritually dead sinners can't do because we're spiritually dead, it's to repent and believe. Like natural man left to himself in his sin will never repent and will never believe because he can't. But just like Jesus commands the man to do what he in and of himself cannot, but he miraculously enables him to do it. Stretch out your hand. Well, so God commands unbelievers to do what we in and of ourselves, cannot, but he miraculously enables us to do it, to repent and believe. And he does that by regenerating us, by giving us life where there previously was none, and then granting us repentance, a, a turning away from our sin and a turning towards God, and granting us faith. Faith in the death and the resurrection of his son. 
And so quite literally, salvation is from beginning to end of the Lord. The gospel isn't us deciding one day that we want to be saved and then us just kind of mustering up enough faith and repentance and our own strength that God then finds acceptable. Any more than this story is about this man deciding one day to just stretch out his hand and in his own strength and be healed. No, the gospel is God taking us when we were completely dead, when we were his enemies, while we were wretched, hell-bound sinners who wanted nothing to do with him, and then sovereignly granting us life that we might be born again and granting us the faith and the repentance that he commands from us that we might be saved. Stretch out your hand. Repent and believe, right? Both are sovereign works of God on an unable recipient. A proper understanding of that truth with regards to our salvation, I think, has several important implications for us. First, it leaves those of us who are saved with absolutely no room for boasting in our testimony, right? Uh, In our own salvation, All the glory goes to God because the work is of him. Even that which we did, we repented and we believed, well, that too was God's work in us. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of anything that we do works so that no one may boast. And so all we can do when we think about our own salvation is just marvel at the undeserved grace that's been shown to us in Christ and give him praise. Second, it gives us confidence in evangelism. Because if salvation is of the Lord, well, it's not really up to us to convince the other person to believe. It's not really on us to persuade the person to repent. It's up to God to take the faithful preaching of the gospel on our parts, and then he does the miraculous work in the heart of the dead sinner. And so your job in evangelism is to faithfully proclaim the message that God might use that as a means to save. And so in that sense, right, the urgency is high, but the pressure is low. Third, closely related to what I just said, It gives us boldness in preaching. Like even now, it gives me this Godward confidence that I can look at every single person in this room and I can call each and every one of you to faith and repentance, to repent and believe, uh, to repent of your sins, uh, turn from your sin and turn towards God, to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, has taken the sins of his people and has given them his perfect, righteous record. Like, I can preach that gospel, I can make this outward call, and I can know full well that while none of you can do that in and of yourselves, and that I can't produce that in you, well, God can, and God does save sinners. Perhaps you, perhaps this morning. Today is the day of salvation, and so I call you to repent and believe, trusting that God will do that work in the hearts of his people. Point number two, the healing. 
That brings us to point number three, the hatred. So Pharisees, let's just think about this logically. Verse eight, Jesus read your minds. Verse nine, Jesus has given you an unanswerable logical argument as to why it's necessary for him to heal this man, right? To not heal him would be to do harm. Verse 10, Jesus has miraculously healed this man before your very eyes. It's like jab, jab, cross, and then boom, right? The Pharisees' plans to trap Jesus have been completely knocked out. There's clear evidence There's unassailable logic. There's the authentication of Jesus through this miracle. I mean, like Pharisees, what more do you want? What more do you need to see? Their reaction should have been one of repentance and worship and rejoicing in Jesus. They've just seen this episode fall on their knees. We were wrong. We got this all wrong. He really is the Messiah. Let's rejoice because the Savior is now here. But we know the Pharisees too well at this point. We've come to expect that there's not going to be any repentance, that there's not going to be any worship, that there's not going to be any joy. Instead, look at verse 11. They were filled with fury. Why are they filled with fury? Well, they're filled with fury because, think about it, after all that plotting, they're trying to trap Jesus. But at the end of the day, they don't have anything that they can pin on him. They want to accuse him of doing work by healing the man here. But if you think about it, look again at the text. Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't touch the man. He doesn't lay his hands on him. He doesn't even like wave his hands in the air. He just says to the man, he says, stretch out your hand, and the guy's healed. So even if they were going to build the case that Jesus is working on the Sabbath according to their rules and their regulations, I mean, what exactly did he do? There's no way you can make a reasonable argument, a reasonable case, regardless of what your definition of work is, that Jesus is doing any work in this story. And so they're furious. Because their trap was a complete failure. But even more than that, they're filled with fury because Jesus successfully performs an undeniable miracle. Just think about this from the perspective of the Pharisees. Here's this guy who, according to them, not according to God's law, of course, but according to their traditions, this man is a Sabbath breaker. He is a horrible sinner. And yet he's doing these wonderful, powerful, undeniable miracles. So what are we going to do? We can't deny the miracles because everybody has seen them. But we can't acknowledge them either. Because if we acknowledge them, what we're saying is that he really is God. In which case, we need to throw out our entire system that opposes him. And so Jesus, Jesus is a threat to their entire religious system, their entire way of life. And so his undeniable miracles produce for them an existential crisis. 
And so in their eyes, there is only one solution. Verse 11, they are filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Mark adds in his account that the Pharisees joined up with the Herodians and together they all conspired against him how to destroy him. And that just reminds us of Psalm chapter 2, doesn't it? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's exactly what's going on here. And it's the same opposition. It's the same desire to get rid of Jesus that's ultimately going to lead to his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his death. And so even here, all the way back in Luke chapter 6, right, we see very, very clear shadows of Calvary. We see this very ominous foreshadowing of the cross. It's only a matter of time. But for now, his time had not yet come. Point number three, the hatred. But as we think about the hatred in their hearts, the murderous intentions in the Pharisees' hearts, how they might destroy him, I think it gives us a little bit more insight into something that Jesus said earlier. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Jesus is trying to do good and save life. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are trying to do harm and destroy life, right? We've already talked about that. But you see, it's not just the guy with the withered hand by not letting him be healed. It's not just him that the Pharisees are harming and destroying. It's also Jesus, the Son of God, that they're trying to harm and destroy. And by the end of this story, that's undeniably clear. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm Jesus? To save life or to destroy Jesus? Because that's exactly what was on their hearts. So now going back to the original question that started this all, who is really violating the Sabbath? Who is the true Sabbath breaker here? You decide. The one healing others on the Sabbath or the ones hating and murdering on the Sabbath? And so the story starts with the Pharisees wanting to accuse Jesus. But by the end of the narrative, it's, it's pretty clear that it's they that stand condemned. But friends, here's where I think we need to be careful as 21st century Christians reading this narrative and reading about the Pharisees like this. I don't know about you, but at times as I'm reading accounts like this, it can seem like the Pharisees are so like over the top in their opposition for Jesus. Like the scriptures make it so clear, uh, no secret that they hate him, that they want to destroy him. And we can almost begin to view them as like this caricature. Like the, like the villains in the cartoons that are just so absurdly ridiculous. And we read this and we say, wow, these guys are unbelievably legalistic. 
And they're so absurdly self-righteous. They're so over the top about their opposition to Jesus. Now those extreme portrayals make us feel comfortable. They make us feel better because it allows us to distance ourselves from them. Those guys, those Pharisees are ridiculous. We're nothing like them. Well, friend, your rejection of Jesus may not be as overt and out there and explicit and visible as the Pharisees. But the plain truths of the scriptures are that if you are not a Christian, if you have not believed the gospel, if you have not been saved, then you too are an enemy of God, just like the Pharisees. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, uh, then implicitly you are trusting in yourself. You are trusting in your own works. You are trusting in your own righteousness, just like the Pharisees. Like we said about Jesus' questions, Luke, through these narratives, he is presenting us with two and only two choices. There is no third option. There is no middle road. God has very clearly demonstrated over and over through this miracle and through others that he is with Jesus. The Father who sent me, he bears witness about me. God is with Jesus. And the Pharisees have very clearly demonstrated through their hatred, through their plotting, through their opposition, that they are against Jesus. And so Luke presents his reader, that's us, he presents us with two and only two choices. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of doing good or doing evil? Are you on the side of saving life or destroying life? Are you on the side of Jesus or the Pharisees? Just like with Jesus' questions, there is no middle ground. May God give us all eyes to see that truth and that we might cry out to him. Father, we thank you for your word and how your word speaks to the very needs of our soul. We pray in particular this morning that this narrative from this gospel would take hold of our hearts. Lord, that we would, as your people, look to Christ and find our only hope of salvation in him. And Father, we pray for those in this room who came in this morning as spiritually dead sinners. Father, we pray that you would indeed grant to them repentance, and grant to them faith that you might sovereignly save their souls even this morning. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.